since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as though some of your own poets have said, excuse me, and also as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for speaking to us through it already, for plowing the fallow ground of our hearts and getting us ready for the pure seed of your word. And may it find a home today as we listen and as we hear and as we understand and as we receive all of the good things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 17, of course, we're on the second missionary journey that began back at the end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16. In chapter 16, of course, uh, the Lord led them in a very dramatic way uh, by closing doors and leading them all through uh, the area that they were traveling. Can you bring up that map of the second journey, please? So just to remind you of that, uh, when that comes up here. There we go. So we're looking at sort of the dotted uh, blue or dotted purple line, depending on your perception of color there. And it went up to that middle section that says Asia, the yellow, and you can see the line going up to sort of the northern border. And that's where the Lord was speaking to them after they had been sort of in reverse order down through Cilicia and through uh, Phrygia and and, uh, Lystra and all of that. And then as they went up, the Lord began to close doors and lead them. They got to Troas. The Lord spoke to Paul in a dream at night. And uh, they concluded at that point that the Lord had called them to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is up in that region you can see in the upper left-hand corner. And as they got there uh, and went up into the region, they landed the first city at the city of Philippi. And as we studied that, that story there in chapter 16, the Lord had used Paul and Silas to minister there uh, to Lydia and to her household. And she was a, a well-to-do woman, a wealthy woman, an influential person. And then the Lord uh, led them actually through preaching the gospel to prison Uh, through the healing and the casting out of the demon, uh, the young girl who was following behind them, proclaiming that these men are the men of the Most High God. 
And Paul kind of got tired of the demonic press, even though it was correct. Uh, We don't need Satan's help to do the work of the Lord. And he cast the demon out of the girl. And for that reason, they got, got cast into prison. And they got beaten severely. And so here they are following the Lord, being obedient to the Lord. And they get thrown in prison and beaten for being obedient. And as they are there that night, worshiping the Lord, singing, we are told in that passage that the other prisoners were listening to them, that their lives were literally on display, even though I'm sure they weren't necessarily thinking that. They were just doing what they knew how to do, which was just to praise the Lord and to call upon his name and to pray. And then the Lord brought an earthquake and all of their chains fell loose. And the guard came running in. And what happened? That prison guard came in, falling down before them, trembling, saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in that moment, God used those very bizarre circumstances to bring this Philippian jailer to faith in Christ. And in that very hour, he took them to his house. He took them out of the jail, which was a capital offense for him, to his house washed their wounds, bandaged them, fed them, ministered to them. And then Paul and Silas ministered to his family. His whole household got saved that night. Crazy situation. Next day they go back. The people come to get them out of jail. Then they find out, of course, they're Roman citizens. They ask them to leave quietly. And that's what got us into chapter 17. And then they went to Thessalonica, then they went to Berea. That's what we looked at last week. So as we come to the end of that section, looking at chapter 17, verse 13, just to back up a bit. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So you can see from... If you can follow the the map there from Berea, the purple line kind of goes out to the sea. So Paul sailed from Berea about 200 miles south down to Athens. So he gets way down there to Athens in that blue area. You can see Athens and Corinth there at the tip. And so that's where he ends up and that's where we find ourselves today. So Acts 17, 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul had left Silas and and Timothy behind. He's traveling by himself at this point for safety. They wanted to get him out of the the area. Uh, He heads down south 200 miles. And that's where we pick up today in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them. So he's by himself in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. When he saw that the city was given over to idols. So the city of Athens, if you know anything at all about ancient history, this was the city where in its heyday, which was long in the past at this point in time, Athens was sort of in decline as Paul walks into the city during this period of time around A.D. 49 or 50. Uh, As he walks in, this was the city where Socrates and where Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno, all of these famous influential men, these philosophers, these great thinkers, 
uh, they had been in that city. They had made their mark in that city. So this was one of the most influential cities of this region of the world at that time. Although, again, as we said, it's in decline. And as he walked into the city... He walks into this great city that has the the Parthenon, and it has the Acropolis. The Parthenon is that temple up on top of the hill. If you you Google this, you'll get to see it. And the Acropolis is sort of that area uh, where the Parthenon sat. So if you look at it, there's this hill that goes up, and you can see the Parthenon, this incredible great structure up there, which, by the way, is under reconstruction even at this point in time. And the Parthenon was that whole area leading up to it. So it was kind of like, think of it as sort of like an inner part of a city, maybe something like Washington, D.C., a very small area. And then up uh, in that area where like where the, the, the capital would be, would be sort of like where the Parthenon was. Except the Parthenon was both the center of government, it was also the center of worship for that area at the time. And as Paul enters this city, he discovers something, that this is a very pantheistic city, that this city is just littered with idols everywhere. In fact, it's said it was easier to meet a god or a goddess than to meet a human being in Athens. Statistically, the population was about 10,000, but it's estimated that there were well over 30,000 idols in this city. And they were literally everywhere. So everywhere you walk in the city, you see idols. Idols are a part of the structure. Idols are a part of what you might think of as an idol, a little statue sitting on a pole, sitting on a platform as you walk by. So as Paul walks through this city, while he's there waiting, notice that it says that his spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked is the word paroxysm, which we saw back in the end of chapter 15 that described that sharp disagreement that were between Paul and Barnabas. And a paroxysm is something that stirs you up. It causes you to react emotionally. It, it, It causes you to react viscerally. And so Paul in his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now it's interesting that as Paul walked through and saw this, he was moved in such a way that he felt like he had to do something. He had to say something. He couldn't just sit there and wait for his uh, friends to arrive, for his ministry team, for, for the reinforcements. In fact, in this moment, Paul had a reaction very much like Jeremiah had back in chapter 20, verse 9, where Jeremiah had reached a point of frustration in his ministry. And he said, I'm not going to speak of the Lord anymore. This is not where Paul was, but this is where Jeremiah was. And it says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. And that's the same idea. That's the essence of what happened as the Apostle Paul is there walking through this city, sort of killing time in a sense, waiting for his friends to arrive. And he's so provoked that he feels, I must do something, I must say something. Now let me stop and ask us, have you ever been in that kind of a situation where you felt like you had to do something? You had to take action, that you were provoked. Maybe it was seeing someone in need. 
Maybe it was like Paul, seeing how lost this city was, how lost the people were, that they were swept up into idolatry and idol worship. One person said, in speaking of this experience that Paul had, as believers, our hearts should ache and our eyes blur at what we see around us. Ignorant souls denying the one true God and giving allegiance to false deities. And here's, he went on to say this, and listen carefully, if we experience no inner paroxysms, no inner conflicts, we have either not truly been redeemed by Jesus Christ, or we have become apathetic to the things of God. Something to consider. Another person said, like Paul, we must have open eyes and broken hearts for what is around us. So in verse 17, Paul moved, provoked. It says there, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So here's what happened. Paul said, What do I do? I'm going to go to the synagogue. That was his custom. He always liked to do that. He was comfortable there. He knew what he would find there. He would at least have an audience where he could begin to speak about the Word of God and also kind of sense, you know, what's going on with these people? They're here living in this city, in this place. What's the temperature here in this synagogue? And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers just as he had been doing all the way along in his life up to this point. And then it says, and in the marketplace daily, the marketplace, the word there is the agora, and maybe you've heard of that, uh, but the agora was the marketplace. So Paul, after he had reasoned in the uh, synagogues with the Jews and with the believers, he went out to find those who weren't believers or those who didn't have an inclination toward the one true God. So he goes to the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So Paul basically resorts to doing street ministry at this point. He walks out through the marketplace and he sees the idols and he just begins to engage people in conversation and to talk with them and just to talk to them about the Lord and about God and about their gods and just begin to interact with them. And then in verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. This was something they had never heard before. So let's talk for just a moment about Epicureans and Stoics. Who were they and what did they believe? Well, the Epicureans, uh, today we associate the word with the pursuit of pleasure and with the love of fine living, especially fine food. Of course, we think of Epicurean restaurants. You know, some restaurants even bear that name. Um, but the Epicurean philosophy involved much more than that. In one sense, the founder, Epicurus, was an existentialist in that he sought truth by means of personal experience and not through reasoning. So in other words, his experience defined truth. Sounds like a lot of people today, doesn't it? Searching for truth through experience. The Epicureans were materialists and atheists, and their goal in life was pleasure. To some, pleasure meant that 
uh, meant that which was grossly physical, but to others it meant a life. Listen to this. This is very important. It meant a life of refined serenity, free from pain and anxiety. Pretty much sounds like everybody I know. Looking to live life like that. Uh, I, I can't deal with life right now. I'm anxious. I'll go to the doctor, get a pill. I want a life that is refined luxury. It's pain-free. And it's a life of serenity. The true Epicurean avoided extremes, a.k.a. change. Anybody resistant to change? The true Epicurean avoided extremes and sought to enjoy life by keeping things in balance. Boy, do I hear that all the time. But pleasure was still the number one goal. So these are the Epicureans. They're atheists. They seek life through, uh, and they seek truth through experience, and they seek to keep their life in balance, everything in balance, nothing to get out of balance, no pain, nothing to rock the boat. My life needs to go through. It needs to be smooth sailing all the time. This is how people live in our society, isn't it? But the thing that, that just struck me as I read this is this is most believers that I know. This is the way we live our lives. The Epicureans also believe that everything happened by chance. And so it sort of justified their responses. The Stoics rejected the idolatry of pagan worship and taught that there was a one world God, meaning there's this ethereal being out there called God, but he expresses himself in many ways, God's little g. So there was one world God, but that, that God expressed himself in many ways, and so they ultimately were pantheists, and their emphasis was on personal discipline and self-control, sort of the opposite of the Epicureans. Pleasure was not good and pain was not evil. The most important thing in life was to follow one's reason and to be self-sufficient and unmoved by inner feelings or outward circumstances. So again, opposite of the Epicureans. Of course, such a philosophy, philosophy only fanned the flames of pride and taught men that they did not need the help of God or a God. And it's interesting that the first two leaders, the founders of the Stoic school of thought, committed suicide. So you have these two people, the, Ep the Epicureans and the Stoics, and these are the people who are sort of the resonant intellectuals of the time. And Paul is out interacting in the marketplace. And as they are listening to him, they call him a babbler. The word babbler means seed picker, and the idea is, it's a very derogatory term, the idea is that he, you just went around like a bird picking up seeds from different schools of thought, and you didn't really understand any of it, but you just kind of mixed it together, you homogenized it together, and created your own school of thought. But they looked down on that, so they called him a babbler or a seed picker, and it just meant that he pulled together a bunch of ideas, but he didn't really understand any of them. And they put together in the way that they were, they didn't make any sense. And I think we can understand that to a degree, right? We've all heard someone who seems to babble from time to time, and they don't make any sense in what they're saying. And so to their ears, what Paul was saying was babbling. 
And so they took him. Now he had been ministering in the synagogue. He had been ministering on the street. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus, you see, that was the gathering where people heard ideas. If you made it there, if you had an audience there, if you were able to get up on the soapbox there where you had been invited in, because you had something worthy of hearing, and in in a a sense, as, as it said a little bit further on, they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So they said, well, we'll give this babbler a chance. So they take him into the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. You see, the Athenian mindset was always in pursuit of something new, something that we've not heard before. And it wasn't just new, it was something exciting, something dazzling, something sensational. And so they welcomed new ideas, they embraced them, and they would listen to anything. So now they brought Paul in, they put him up into the Areopagus, and they put him in the place where a speech would be given. And if a speech was given at Mars Hill, then Paul was, as he was there, he was standing, he could see everything. The vantage point from Mars Hill was you could see the Colosseum, the the Parthenon. You could see that whole area, and it was a very dramatic thing. And so as Paul is there, remember it said that he was provoked by all of the idols. He's in the place in the Areopagus where many of the, the idols were collected and it was sort of a concentration. So he's standing there with a concentration of idols all over the stadium. And here he's going to preach the gospel to these people in the midst of what they worship. It's an amazing sight to think that Paul was there. You know, you may think maybe, you know, you're not in that front person, you know, standing up here and speaking might be frightening to you. Think of standing before a bunch of people who are literally pagans. They are heathens in the strictest sense of the word. And you're going to stand up there in their temple and preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they say in verse 20, for you, Paul, are bringing some strange things to our ears. We've heard some strange things before, but nothing like this. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. In other words, they're giving him an open door. They're saying, speak to us. Tell us. For all the Athenians, as we referred to, and the foreigners who were there, spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear something new. So for Paul, this was an open door. He wanted to hear. Then Paul stood up, verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now notice Paul, as he stood up, he did not attack their idolatry. He didn't belittle them. He didn't call them dumb or stupid or anything like that. Certainly, if you're going to speak to people, you need to endear yourself to them. You need to build a bridge. And so many believe, and I would agree with them, that this passage where Paul is speaking the things that we're about to read, this is a great passage. If you say, I want to learn how to be an apologist, this is a great place to go. This is a wonderful thing to study. So he begins by building a bridge and saying, I perceive that in all these things you're very religious. And in a sense, this is representing as he looks at all of these idols, not only how lost they are, but in a sense that they are, they're looking for something, that they're hungry, they're looking for God. 
It's just that they're looking in all the wrong places. Their ideas of who God is and how he manifests himself are so bizarre. And he says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, so he's speaking their language, I was thinking about these things that you worship and how you worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now understand that these idols were deifications of everything. In, in Greek thought, they, they deified everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, emotions, love, philosophies, thoughts. Anything that they could think of as a god, they made a statue to that god. Remember I said earlier there were over 30,000. Some of those, of course, were duplicates. But also, in the uh, event that they had not considered someone or something a god and created an idol to it, they created these little idols or these little altars all over the city. This was not the only one. And it had the inscription to the unknown god just in case they had forgotten, just in case they had missed him or her and they didn't want to offend that god. So they had the, to the unknown God everywhere. So Paul had seen that. And he says, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, because to them having an idol to Diana, having an idol to Asclepius or, or whatever, they thought, well, we know what we're worshiping there. But the unknown God, Paul is saying to them, uh, this one whom you worship without knowing, he's the one I want to proclaim to you. I want to tell you about him, knowing that they would be anxious in knowing about the unknown God. Because up to this point in their life, they had had that there really more as a safeguard. So Paul, building this bridge, attempting to relate to them. And it's interesting that this word unknown is the word from which we get our word agnostic. And the word agnostic, in case you're not familiar with it, means without knowledge. It means I don't know. So when we talk about people with respect to the faith and how they approach the faith, how they approach the Bible, how they approach God, we usually refer to them in one of two categories. Either atheists, they say there is no God, they don't believe in a God, or we often say they are agnostic. In other words, maybe they're searching, they're just without knowledge, they just don't know, they've never heard. And so Paul is taking this to the unknown God and he's bringing this to the forefront of their mind. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So Paul, in speaking to these people, can't speak to them in the same way, of course, as he would speak in in a synagogue, right? Because in a synagogue, people had a knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. So Paul is now speaking to them about things that they have questions about, but he's actually speaking to them from the Scriptures without saying that he's speaking from the Scriptures. So this is why it's so important for us to learn from this. So God who made the world and everything in it, he's speaking from the book of Genesis, isn't he? He's speaking from the Psalms. He's speaking about the truth that God is the creator of the world. He is the creator creator of all things. Remember, in the beginning, God. 
created the heaven and the earth. And by the end of chapter two, roll, uh, chapter one, rolling into chapter two in the book of Genesis, where he creates male and female. And it says, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Remember the creation story talks about how God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke them into existence. And he says that this Lord, this God, does not, he cannot dwell in a temple made with hands. You've, you've spent your lives building temples and building idols, and yet this God, the unknown God, he, he created everything that you know and that you see. So remember they had this idea that, that God was kind of everywhere and everything and that, that God could appear in all these different forms and all of that. I was thinking about this and just to ground us, I was thinking about that story in 1 Kings chapter 19. You may remember the story where the Lord speaks to Elijah. And what happened in that situation is Elijah had just had his encounter with the prophets of Baal. And he had slain the 450 prophets of Baal. And Jezebel was after him, and so he was running and hiding. And in 1 Kings 19 verse 9, it says that he was there, he went into a cave, he spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord spoke to him, and he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Now they would have deified the wind in that situation. And it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Well, they would have deified that and maybe made an idol out of a broken rock, saying that, you see, this was the anger of the gods and how we had upset them. And so this is sort of a an idol to the anger of the gods. And it says, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, oh man, talk about deifying fire, idols to fire everywhere. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And so Paul, in like manner, is teaching them the same lesson that the Lord himself taught Elijah. I am coming for you. I will relate to you. You need to relate to me. And so he goes on and he says in verse 25, Paul speaking of Acts chapter 17, nor is he worshipped with men's hands. In other words, you can't make something that would please God. As though he needed anything since he gives to all. Listen to what he gives. Life, breath, and all things. So God himself has provided everything we have. It's interesting in Psalm 50, God expressed this same sentiment where he says in Psalm 50, beginning in verse 9, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your idols, excuse, excuse me, nor goats out of your folds, 
Uh, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all of its fullness. You see, God not only created everything, but everything belongs to him. So to think that we can appease God by creating something, carving something, and giving it back to him and thinking, oh, well, this will keep him happy. This will keep his, his wrath, his anger off of me for a little while is foolishness. And in verse 26, as Paul continues, he says, and he, that is God, has made from one blood. So he's, he's dealing with creation. He's dealing with the sovereignty of God. And now he says, and he has made from one blood every nation. God created men. God set up the nations, one blood, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, God is the one who has set up boundaries for countries and where people dwell. He's set up how long people will live. And it says in verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord. You see, that's the hope, hope, that's the goal. God has done all of this so that we might seek him in hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. And I believe that Paul spoke specifically that way at that moment by saying that they might grope for him as he stood there looking at these idols saying, this is evidence of your groping. You're looking for God. You're looking, you're searching, but you don't know what you're looking for. And I'm telling you, he's what you're looking for. And hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He is here. He's among us. Practically speaking, as Paul is speaking to them, he's saying that they were not living in Athens as a result of some cosmic accident, which they sort of thought that's what had happened, but that God had structured their lives in order to attract them to him. And at that very moment, Paul is no doubt declaring to them at that very moment, I'm speaking to you so that you can find out who this unknown God is and make all this other stuff go away. Notice what he says in verse 28, for in him, in this God, we live and move and have our being. In other words, It's not random. It's not by chance. Life is not hopeless. We are here for him. And he has given us our lives. In him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, because he says, therefore we are his offspring. Interesting how Paul takes their own literature, their own poets, their own writers, which they knew, and he quotes back to them from those writers. This particular quote comes from uh, the writings or the work of Epimenides, and it's a poem attributed to him. Uh, He was a Cretan in 600 BC, and they regarded him as, you know, a very wise and influential person. And here's what he wrote. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou art not dead, Thou livest and abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. 
This was a famous passage which they all knew, and it was probably something they were taught in school. And here Paul is quoting from it. Now you may have recognized that second line that says Cretans are always liars and evil beasts. And Paul again takes that line and he quotes it in Titus 1.12 when he says, uh, as he's speaking to them about people who were uh, you know, causing trouble there in the city where Titus is, is ministering in, in the church. And he says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy guttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the truth or in the faith. So from this poem or this line, this writing, uh, the fourth verse, for in thee we live and move and have our being, he quotes this to them. And they hear it. And they understand it. And they, they know that what's happening here is he's speaking to them, is he's, he's gained their trust. He's speaking to them saying, even your own writers point to the one true and the living God, even though they didn't know that it was him. So here we are. Paul is speaking to them. He says in verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, because we originate from him, he is our God, he is our Father, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, Paul is saying, in light of what I've just told you, here's the only logical conclusion. God made us in his image. And because God made us, it's foolish for us to make gods in our own image and then offer them back to God. Does that make sense to anyone? Because the Greek religion was nothing but the manufacture and worship of gods that were patterned after themselves. And it's interesting that there's this verse in the Old Testament that says we become like the thing that we worship. And so if we create and we pattern gods after ourselves, what do we do when we worship those gods? All we do is, in essence, worship ourselves. So Paul is showing to them that because God is who he is and he reasoned from creation and how God has, has everything under control and in order and then God created mankind because mankind was created for him. We were created for his pleasure and that we cannot give anything to God. In fact, it is us who need God. We need him. He does not need us. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. This is the new thing. He's getting to the heart of it here. Here's the new thing. God, the God who you've been looking for, the creator, he's commanding that all men everywhere should repent because, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. You see, we can't live in that free way where we can just live in pleasure or live under our own thought, live in, in the confines or the constructs of our own mind, of our own rational thinking. Because we are all going to have to give an account to this God. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, notice in your text it's capitalized, he's referring to Jesus, whom he has ordained. So the idea that God himself has appointed a man who would be the judge of the world, this is crazy to their mind, to their ear, to their way of thinking. And he has given assurance 
of this to all of us by raising him from the dead, speaking of Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, which is something that they had never heard, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Notice it didn't say there, some believed. It just said some mocked and some said, "Eh, I don't know. That's interesting. I'll think about that. Maybe if you're here tomorrow or the next day, maybe I'll come back and listen to you again. So Paul departed from among them. Verse 34. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you get the sense here as you read this that unlike the other places where Paul went, where there was a reception and people believed and a church got established, that here in this place, there's hard ground. Here in this place, as Paul is is ministering, and no doubt, being the Apostle Paul, I believed, even though this passage doesn't tell us, I believe he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And here he is ministering, and this time, he's not having the effect uh, or the, uh, the fruit that he had had in previous places. Some might look at this situation as Paul is ministering and saying he was a failure or he made a mistake or maybe he wasn't where God wanted him to be and I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think in this context we can have a better understanding of what he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 because the next place he goes after Athens is Corinth. Here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law not being without law toward God but but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it. See, Paul, as he walked into this situation, he was in a completely pagan situation, as he began to minister to them, I believe he gave them this masterful presentation of the gospel to reel them in to speak to them where they were to build a bridge to make a connection so that he could draw them to the place of giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ some believe that when Paul arrived in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2 2 it says I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified that perhaps coming out of this experience maybe he learned that he needed to just be much more bold about Christ and that's possible although we don't know that to be the case but as Paul speaks to them here he is doing his best to reach out to them to build that bridge and when you see these seemingly meager results in Athens and as far as we know no church was established there this was one of the foremost cities after seeing the great harvests of every other place that he had been you might wonder was Paul a failure in this situation and I would say to you this way in thinking of it from the point of view of the parable of the sower remember 
the sower went out to sow seed, Matthew 13, and some fell on the wayside, the hard path, and the birds of the air came and snatched up that seed. Then some fell on the stony soil where there was no depth, and some fell on the soil where there were weeds and thorns, and it choked out the life and the fruitfulness. And then the seed fell on the good soil, some 30, 60, and a hundredfold, I believe, as the seed fell here in Athens. That probably one of the first two or possibly three soils was what Paul encountered there. And it's interesting, perhaps you've seen this yourself in your own walk as a believer. There are some who want to know, they're interested. And others you speak to, or you share the gospel with them, you give them a track, you build this relationship with them, and it just seems like they're constantly resistant. And I believe Paul the Apostle encountered what I would call hard ground here in Athens. You see, not everyone can be successful, and not everyone can preach the gospel and have, you know, thousands of people raise their hand and indicate a decision for Christ. So what do we learn from this situation where Paul, as he was stirred, no doubt as he, he was by the Spirit, and he preached to them. And the idea is simply this, you do the right thing. You preach the gospel. We don't gauge what happens with the soil. We sow the seed. And we leave that in God's hands. Now there were a few believers here, we were just told. Praise God for that. One soul is rejoiced over in heaven. Isn't that true? The Gospel of Luke tells us that. All the angels in heaven rejoice over the soul of one who believes. Certainly there was Dionysius. Dionysius the Areopagite was one of the most influential people. He was a member of the council of the Areopagus there, so certainly a, a highly recognized and visible individual. A woman named Damaris, and it just says, and others with them. So I would conclude there's at least four people who believed on, on Christ in this city. And that's important for matters to God. But Paul didn't have that, that experience here as he had in other cities. Notice he didn't get beaten here. Praise God for that. I'm sure he was grateful that he walked out of a city not having to be bruised and banged up. But no doubt as he leaves this situation, the Lord taught him something. Be faithful, continue, do the right thing preach the gospel, care about people, love people. Yes, you should be provoked. Remember at the beginning of the passage, his spirit was provoked within him. Allow yourself to be provoked when you see people who are lost. And allow that to drive you to continue to share the gospel with people. It's interesting, next week we'll come to this in, in chapter 18, verse 1. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And in this next section, as we go into chapter 18, in chapter 18, he'll go to Corinth, he'll make a brief stop in Ephesus, then he heads back to uh, the, the church in Antioch, and that's the end of the second journey. But what God does on this second journey is truly amazing. It's a powerful thing that God did. All of the lessons that he taught, he took him on a 3,000-mile journey. And God is no doubt teaching him along every step of the way. And I think it's, it's no accident that today, and I didn't plan this, that we had these two men, Jesse and Nate, speak to us about their experiences. They're on that journey. They're on that path. And what they're doing, they're ministering in different ways in different places, but God is producing fruit in different ways. And so we need to be faithful where God has planted us. 
And whether we are in a place and we're planted and this is it and this is our mission field or whether, like the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, whether we are journeying and we're traveling all over the place and, 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 and that kind of a thing, whatever sphere of ministry God gives us, we must be faithful and continue to plow, continue to sow, and continue to wait for God to do something. There may have been hard ground in Athens. There may be hard ground here in our city. But let us, like Paul, continue to sow and to plow and to weed and to plant in hopes that God himself will cause that seed to fall on the good soil. And that's what we all long for, isn't it? Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you give us this encouragement that we need to continue to be faithful and to minister and to leave the results in your hand and to not give up just because the response isn't what we want it to be, but to press forward to be faithful. Lord, for those who are listening today who may uh, be like the people Paul was speaking to who, who don't know you or maybe they've been searching for you but they've never found you. Lord, let this be the day for them where they understand that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world and that the, the blood from his beating and his crucifixion became the blood on the offering that became the covering for our sin. And he did that to redeem us to you. And as, just as Paul said, Lord, it's you reaching down to us. God is the initiator, man is the responder. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that they would respond to you, to your spirit, to your truth, and realize that Jesus came for them just as he came for all of us. But we have to believe. We have to receive. We have to accept. And so we pray that those listening right now would do that in their hearts, that they would believe, that they would receive, that they would accept. And as Paul said in this passage, that, that they would repent and turn from serving themselves and serving their own idols and turn to serve the true and the living God. Because there is hope in no other. And one day, as Paul said, there is an encounter coming with the judge. And the only way for that to go well is to believe in Jesus. Outside of that, there is no hope. There is no other. There is no other name. There's no other paths that lead to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Lord, this morning, I pray that those people would bend their knee and pray and come to you. Lord, we love you. We bless you. Would you stir us up in our hearts that we might be provoked like Paul to not sit idly by, but to reach out, to minister, to speak the name of Jesus, to hand out tracts, to do whatever it takes, Lord, to reach people for the sake of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.